As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Bruce Kasman joins us now, Chief Economist and Head of Global Economic Research at J.P. Morgan. Bruce, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Is divided government the best outcome as far as you're concerned? Do you have any pushback against that whatsoever? Well, I think divided government means you're not going to get very strong action in terms of things like fiscal policy. And in the context of how high our deficit is and how much we've already done, that's a good thing. I think the concern is that if you have a need for action because of a recession or some other crisis, it's going to be hard to see uh, government mobilize. Also, you have to worry about brinkmanship, things like debt ceiling crisis, government shutdowns. Mm -hmm. Those are going to come back into the picture uh, clearly as we move towards next year. Uh, Bruce, we blame politicians for inflation. Can politicians cure high inflation? I think inflation is always an interaction between things happening in the global economy, which are not in the hands of politicians, and also what the political economy, not only the central banks, do in response to that. Uh, and I think what we could say about the inflation spike of the last year and a half is it's not primarily a central bank phenomenon, not primarily a political phenomenon, but how this is going to play out over the next couple of years is largely going to be uh, a re response by policy, how much they're committed to bringing it down. Um, we think that inflation is moving down and it's going to move down in the core number uh, this week and I think will continue, but it's not going to move down by, a, by enough to get us back to 2%. And that's going to require the Fed and unfortunately, probably at some point, require a recession in the U.S. to deliver that unwind. Bruce, Laham, what components are you watching within the inflation print to understand the pace of how much is coming down? Well, I think what we're going to see is uh, really a big dynamic of goods prices moderating. The energy story is going to pop up this month, but it's still on a broad downward trajectory. But I think core goods fall both because supply uh, side pressures around the pandemic are starting to ease, uh, as well as the dollar having moved up here. We see import prices falling for five straight months in the U.S. Uh, that's going to be magnified by what's happening in the auto sector where prices are coming down. There's also some help coming, I think, in healthcare prices in the CPI. Uh, that's a bit more of a technical issue. But rental shelter price inflation is going to be the factor that's going to keep things up here and prevent us from getting a more substantial fall in the next number of months. We think we're on track for 0.4 this week, 0.3 is in the next uh, three or four months. That's a significant step down, but it's not bringing us back to where we need to be. 
Bruce, over the past few weeks, we've been talking extensively about whether a reopening in China, whether an acceleration in the Chinese economy would be a good thing or a bad thing, right? And from a supply chain uh, perspective, perhaps that would be a good thing for the U.S. economy and more broadly uh, because it eases some of those pressures that we're seeing, for example, with the iPhone 14 right now. But on the flip side, there is this question of bidding up a lot of commodities and this question of competition and this question of, well, does that increase demand so much that the supplies can't keep pace? So how do you even begin to think about this? Well, I think the, the, the issue about the supply chain in China normalizing in Asia more generally is a big disinflationary impulse, and that is built into our forecast. I actually think the big story about China is how much is it slowing after a reopening bounce in the third quarter. Uh, the housing sector is problematic. Uh, there still is COVID problems. You know, so if we see China actually slowing quite sharply into year end, probably growing less than 5%, which for China is a relatively weak outcome. So from our point of view, the bigger issue on China is it going to be a negative impulse on global demand. Obviously, if it was strong, that would uh, tilt in the other direction on the global inflation scene. Bruce, over the last 12 months or so, this administration a few times has floated some trial balloons around changing policy over the tariffs on China. The one thing that people agree on down here in Washington, D.C., is a strong, tough stance against the Chinese Communist Party. Are you expecting that to change at all after these midterms? Not really. There may be some opportunity for relaxation on tariffs. It's not built into our forecast. Uh, if that would happen, it would help a little bit on the inflation scene. Uh, I don't think that's uh, going to be the main story on U.S. inflation, and I don't think it's going to be the main story on U.S. policy, where I think you're correct. I think in tech, I think in other areas, we're getting tougher. Uh, there's more of a, a decoupling taking place here and more, I think, uh, contentious policy that's going to continue in U.S.-China relations. Hey, Bruce, wonderful to hear from you, as always. Bruce Kasman there of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Right now, joining us from Arkansas, he's been a wonderful support to the show. His name is French Hill. He is the Republican from Arkansas waiting for election results tonight. I don't know, French, if I can say widely presume, but at least I can say in the zeitgeist is a Republican victory. French Hill, will the victory tonight be like the shock that we saw in 1994? Well, Tom, Lisa, Jonathan, great to be with you. You know, I don't think it will be the shock we had in 1994 because Republicans hadn't been in charge uh, in the House of Representatives uh, for 40 years at that point. So we've seen the uh, House flip before in the last decade. House Republicans are ready uh, to lead on trying to control inflation, go back to pre-pandemic spending priorities, lead on unleashing American energy, and focusing on security, security in our communities, at the border, and the challenges that we face uh, around the world as the largest superpower. How is your party in majority in the House distracted by former President Trump, who has every right to run again, but distracted by that moment? Well, President Trump is a fighter. President Trump has strong views, and there's no doubt that members of Congress, uh, many members of Congress, follow uh, his views on topics. And so if he weighs in on a topic in the midst of a, uh, a debate in the House, I don't have any doubt that he would have uh, influence inside the Republican Party. Look, that's the mission of Kevin McCarthy, who I expect to be elected as the Speaker of the House if the Republicans take uh, control tonight. And Kevin will have that responsibility to build a consensus 
among a majority of Republican members on how to go forward on these critical issues. French, there's a, uh, an assumption in markets and beyond, certainly in Europe, that Republicans right now are less excited about continuing some of the aid to Ukraine and want to focus more on reducing inflation domestically, on keeping natural gas here in the United States. What's your view on that? Should there be some sort of restriction on exports if prices do rise beyond a certain amount? Well, we do face a tough uh, winter in energy markets uh, with rising prices, and we don't have supply where we want it. I think the president's uh, proposal of cutting the uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve by 200 million barrels down to a 1984 level was a bad and dangerous policy. And this is exactly why, Lisa, because that Strategic Petroleum Reserve is in case of major shortage and impact on the U.S. So I think <coughs> he's contributed to this but energy crisis this winter by that decision. In, in all fairness, though, natural gas is a different story, right? And the natural gas exports from the U.S. is really what's yeah. in question because that's really uh, what Europe and Germany in particular really needs right now. So what would your stance be I, on the threshold to restrict some of that of those exports? Well, I wouldn't restrict uh, exports unless we were in an absolute energy emergency here, which we have uh, we need to be smart about, and that's why I raised uh, the reserve on the oil side. But look, Europe needs natural gas, and Joe Biden's been <laughs> terrible on producing natural gas here. He's taken a lot of decisions that have made it very hard uh, to get our energy industry back up to pre-pandemic production, and with a positive outlook that production will produce a solid internal rate of return in the future, because we need to be having our natural gas here, but we need to be exporting natural gas in this energy crisis to our allies in Europe. Congressman, isn't the damage done? Even if we get a Republican Congress from these midterms, if you're an oil producer right now trying to make multi-decade decisions, as far as they're concerned, isn't this story over? Well, uh, I don't think so, Jonathan. I think we have to be for and all of the above energy policy during this transition, whether you're in Europe or the United States or in Asia. We need to be moving to natural gas uh, from coal. We need to be investing in nuclear. And we need to have our energy companies uh, recognize, and governments have to recognize, that it takes a 100 million barrel a day equivalent to run the global industrial economy. And to prematurely cut that back or injure it without the uh, offsetting cleaner alternatives, you're in trouble as an economy. And the third world will pay the highest price, not only from exporting America's inflation, uh, but by these policies that curtail the use of energy in the third world. Congressman, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. French Hill, as always, on Bloomberg You bet, Great to be with you. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions 
alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We go to the other side and arguably the most interesting Democrat Party experiment in America, and that is Vermont. I spoke with Senator Leahy a number of weeks ago, his wonderful new book out, The Path of Senator Leahy Over the Decades, and it's been a path shared by his colleague Peter Welch as well, congressman, and of course in a dash for the Senate here on this Tuesday. Uh, Let me start with a Vermont tradition, uh, Congressman. Will you vote early? Will you vote often? Well, I'll vote early, but to vote often is a, is a Chicago tradition. So okay. just once and done. Here. We'll, leave, we'll leave that to Mayor Daly and the rest. I need to talk about the transformation of Vermont and what is unspoken. I remember White River Junction years and years ago impoverished up the Connecticut River, and it is now bustling. It is a boom economy with an unemployment rate, I believe, under 2%. What is the Vermont pixie dust that makes for prosperity? Well, uh, White River is where I first came, 1974, and it was the town you described, and now it's doing extremely well. But, you know, I think there's a real civic tradition here where our businesses uh, and our government have worked very well together in partnership. And we've had a commitment to uh, our environment through Republican and Democratic governors. We've had a a commitment to, in tough times, uh, trying to support people who needed help. Uh, and then lower taxes when when times were good. So there's, I think, been a Mm -hmm. very functional government here uh, through Republican and Democratic administrations where there's been uh, social liberalism and economic stewardship, uh, and we pay our bills here in Vermont. As time moves on, as Senator Sanders retires, Senator Leahy retires, do you suggest a Democratic Party that will move to a national center away from a more East Coast and West Coast liberality? Well, you know, let's define that liberality. I think what has worked for us and I think is good for the National Democratic Party uh, is to have uh, a commitment to the environment and understanding that there's got to be partnerships between uh, government and the private sector in order to get things done. And frankly, I think that's what you see with the Inflation Reduction Act on climate change, where there's a lot of tax incentives that's going to help create a market dynamic. Uh, and there's a there's a good deal of civic cooperation here in Vermont, where people here listen more than they talk, where when we disagree with somebody, we don't assume bad motives. I mean, I, I actually think of the way we do things here in Vermont, we've got a Republican governor and we've got a Democratic plus uh, independent, of course, in Bernie Sanders uh, in the in Congress. But where uh, that mutual respect is something that we need. Uh, and we certainly don't have election deniers here in the state of Vermont. But Congressman, talking about the green transition, there's been so much pushback of late because of the need to invest <clears throat> in fossil fuels in the near term. How do you dovetail a message that is supportive for the oil and gas that people rely on to heat their homes in a winter t- uh, that's going to potentially be fraught with very high prices uh, with the idea that you need to invest long term with the idea that people don't want to spend too much money in the face of inflation? 
Well, no, you're exactly right. I mean, the bottom line here is if we're going to get to clean energy, and I think everybody knows we need to do that, it's got to be affordable. Uh, you know, if a person is going to want to get a truck and they want an F-150 electric, that ultimately has to be an affordable uh, purchase for them. And that's the, in order for that to happen, and this has been the case in many other technological transformations, government policy plays a big role with tax incentives that then encourage private investment. We saw that with solar, the cost of panels coming way down, but that we are not yet there in some of these other areas like the electric vehicles. Uh, and so I think the combination of public policy and incentives to make that gradual transition. But in the meantime, you know, if people are going to get through the winter, we got to make sure that they have affordable heating fuel. And that'll be a big issue for us, uh, I think, when we return to Washington. Congressman, are you worried about the perception of the Democratic Party as have, having gotten too extreme on the left side? Well, certainly in the campaign, you know, the campaign reduces things down to kind of an absurd, uh, narrow definition. Uh, and in fact, when you look at our record, there has been significant focus on uh, economic uh, development and jobs. And, uh, you know, the big challenge we're facing right now is coming out of COVID. We've got inflation in this country, but we've got inflation around the world that's even worse than ours. And we've got to take the steps to bring it down. And the choice that we have here, this is what uh, is going to await us tomorrow after we get the verdict of the voters. We've got history with this Republican Party, particularly in the House, where they're pretty extreme policies. And we'll be hearing a lot of talk about getting government spending under control by reducing Social Security. We'll have a lot of discussion about getting a government spending under control by defaulting on our debt. We've been through that. And colleagues of mine in the House are saying that they want to default on the debt unless they get their way on their spending proposals. So there's a lot of jeopardy here, uh, depending on what the outcome of this election is, where we start going uh, in the House back to the impeachments, impeachment of Hunter Biden, maybe the impeachment of Joe Biden, default on the debt is a threat, government shutdown, and all of that's chaos uh, for the well-being of our, uh, of our economy. Congressman, thanks for being with us today. Peter Walsh there, Thank the you. Congressman. Right now, we drive forward the conversation with a Beltway Insider with Rock Creek Group. Alifia Dorwalla joins us now, their managing director. Thank you so much for getting up. It's way too early for what I mean, even on election day, Washington doesn't get up to late 30, do oh, they? Oh, no, we're, we're up. We're finance people, so we're up. It's exciting. Explain election day in Washington. French Hill was in Arkansas, as he should be today. Is, is Washington deserted on election day? You know, I don't know if it's as exciting as people want to think Washington is on Election Day. Everyone's working from home anyway, especially the government. So I don't know if we are getting a lot of excitement today. And I think markets are, as you said, pricing in a little bit of a split, um, you know, Congress and what that means for markets. What are the risks around that view? 
from your perspective, is that good or bad? Because we're told overwhelmingly it is good. Uh, you know, I mean, it could be in good. It could be, right, less inflationary pressure because you don't have as much fiscal spending. You could see a weaker dollar. All of those things could price into markets and, um, you know, be being a little bit more positive. But honestly, I do think that the midterm elections will just be a small blip in what we see in markets. Unfortunately, everyone's kind of probably sick and tired of hearing this, but it's all about inflation. What's the, uh, the longer-term consequence of the fiscal response probably not being there regardless of who gets elected into the White House, even in 2024? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's interesting because we don't talk a lot about the Inflation Reduction Act as well, right, and the investment implications of the IRA. We've been looking a lot and doing a lot of research to see what are the different areas that we can actually invest in that are going to get tailwinds from some of that IRA money, and there are places and there's pockets of opportunity there. You manage cautious money, conservative money. If there is a new risk-free rate, I mentioned the two-year yield where it is, how does that change? And I don't mean this on a, on a, on a direct pension basis, but how does it change the actuarial or return assumption of international money? No, it's part of the building blocks of your capital market return assumptions, right? And we manage money for endowments, foundations, pensions. They want to have their money there in perpetuity. And so having, um, you know, these type of rates in the fixed income market, we are talking so much more about how to manage our fixed income exposure. One of the best trades now is putting your cash in six-month T-bills. How do you manage your fixed income losses of the last couple of years? Everybody's enjoyed that. Yeah, you know, I mean, 16, what, the U.S. bond market is down about 16% this year, right? Equity markets are down about 25%. Uh, We've had a very diversified fixed income exposure. We've also included tips, gold, floating rate funds. There are a lot of pockets. We've stayed away from high yield. So we've been very short duration as well, which has actually helped us manage our and limit our losses on the downside. One thing we've been trying to work out is whether we operate with the underlying assumption that we're going to have Fed funds at, say, 35 to 5% for the next couple years. Is that your basic assumption now? It is our basic assumption right now, but we are looking very closely, right, and when the Fed's going to pause, when they're going to pivot, and that's going to completely change some of the rotation in terms of portfolios and where you want to be putting your money. You might want to be increasing your duration. You might want to be increasing your fixed fixed income exposure. You're going to want to see where equities are in terms of valuations across the globe. When do you think you'll see a 60-40 kind of portfolio start to reassert itself in a positive way? I think, you know, I mean, timeline, I, I think you're out at least 12, 18 months before you start to see any sort of appreciation in the in the 60-40 um, type of portfolio. And, and we're looking for just a diversified portfolio, a lot of alternatives today as well. Where does the diversification come from then? If we're basically faced with a positive equity bond correlation for the foreseeable future, you talked about diversifying. Where does it come from? So we have the advantage of being able to invest in private markets, right? And as much as we've seen valuations come down in private markets as well, they haven't come down as much in public markets. And there is so much innovation going on, and there are lots of sectors that are actually less cyclical, I mean, are less economically sensitive and less cyclical than what we're seeing in tech today. So we're investing in food, we're investing in ag, we're investing in climate-related areas, all things that we think are going to be 10-year-fold investments. Have private markets adjusted yet? When you look at them, have they really adjusted yet? Well, private markets never adjust. That's the beauty of private markets, right? Okay, but just because something doesn't trade doesn't mean that it doesn't go down in value. Do you think that anyone's going to have to sell and lock in the declines that people are... Yeah, that's the point. So if you look at the venture side of things, right, if you look at some of the companies that are most well-run, they have 18 to 24 months of runway in terms of cash. That's not that. That could get you through a period where you don't have to go to market very soon. So there's going to be a bifurcation in terms of companies that have been able to manage their balance sheets well and those that haven't even in the private markets. Alifia, good to see you. Thank As you. always, Alifia Dorawana there of Rock Creek Group. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. 
That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Dan Jurgen joins us this morning. Commanding Heights, it is the most optimistic modern treatment of capitalism that is out there. Has the optimism evaporated? When you look at the commanding heights of America, have we given up the optimism? Well, of I our think parents? certainly we can put it, Tom, in terms of the balance of confidence in markets, which was very strong, has receded. And it has shifted. And we've seen, you know, in terms of the last four years, or really since the financial crisis of 2008, kind of a reassertion of a stronger government role across the economy. Lisa and John, I want to jump in here with a lot of other questions in a two-hour conversation with you. I'm kidding, folks. We get Dan Jurgen for some precious minutes. Are we a two-party nation, or are we fracturing our historic two-party system? Well, I think it's hard to see us not having a two-party system, but we probably at this point have a four-party system, moderates and the Democrats, moderates and the Republicans, and then the two sides of the party. We need to talk about how we're going to build out refining capacity in this country. I've heard from Republicans that they're pro-fossil fuels and they're hopeful that they can change the story. I think a lot of us have our doubts about that. You know better than most, in fact, better than pretty much everyone we speak to, that these individuals, these companies make multi-decade decisions and no one's willing to make that decision right now. Can we change that story in no, America? I don't think so. I think you'll see some modest, uh, you'll see un, uh, de-bottlenecking of refineries and some expansion and some building, but basically uh, nobody's going to commit, as you say, to a long-term investment because you don't know what the regulations will be in three and four years. And in recent years, the regulations have really encouraged people to shut down refineries. So how has this really changed the political lines, the fault lines around the world? We thought we talk about how India has refined a lot of oil from Russia and then imported it or exported, excuse me, back to uh, Europe. How much is the U.S. is Europe willing to crack down on those types of partnerships that are getting closer at a time when they need the ultimate product? I think it's going to be very difficult. Uh, India was importing less about 1% of its oil from Russia a year ago. Now it's 23%. And the Indian foreign minister just a day or so ago in in Moscow said that uh, Russia is, what do you say, a steady and time-tested partner. And of course, uh, they're indicating they're not going to go along with a price cap, although Janet Yellen is, uh, is going to New Delhi to encourage them to do that. But the Indians, I mean, this is a pretty strong assertion of their long-term relationship with Russia. You know, Liam Dunning, a columnist uh, on Bloomberg Opinion, wrote a story about how $5 gasoline is a big problem for the Democrats, but it's not a big problem for, uh, for drivers. Are politicians trying to adopt the case for oil and fossil fuels and policy when really they've got very little control over it at this point. 
Well, I think it's true. I mean, even you talk about uh, windfall profits. I mean, the companies, I mean, it's really a global market. It's a very big global market with 100 million barrels a day. Uh, but nevertheless, we do know that gasoline prices have an outsized symbolic impact uh, as well as a real impact in terms of how people vote. When was the last time you saw relations between Riyadh and Washington as bad as they are right now? Well, I just came back from there, uh, and I would say it's pretty tense. I think it's been, you'd have to go back a few years. There have been earlier periods, obviously, Khashoggi was one period. But uh, right now, it was, you know, it was just, you could feel the palpable tension between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, although on a strategic interest, they, they do coincide. Do you think they can reconcile their differences? And if they don't at this point, if, as things stand, what are the consequences? Well, I think that the, that's a very good question. I think ultimately this, uh, and I, I got into dialogues about that actually in, uh, in there. I think that ultimately the strategic interests will coincide, but it's, it's, a, it's a rocky period right now. And obviously uh, the cut in production uh, a month before the U.S. election uh, was very incendiary. I think the temperature has to be brought down because there are a lot of other big issues there, including Iran. There is a new map, Dan. But what the new map is, is about the tradition, the tradition, the fear of America that's seen in isolationism. What's our isolationism look right now with Ukraine and, frankly, with the tensions John mentions well, in Saudi Arabia? Well, I think Arabia? less so than it did a few years ago because we really revivified our basic coalitions with Europe and with our Asian partners. So I think that part, that part is different. But we are, you know, with this war is so uncertain and you could still have an accident that could carry it into a much more serious state. Dan, final question, and it's a tough one. So forgive me for asking it. This administration has found it very, very difficult to square this circle, to say drill please, and auto to say no more drilling. How do they square that circle? Well, I think you've just said it. It's, it's a very hard circle to square. It's, a, it's short term, we want more oil. Long term, we want to get off oil. And it's a very confusing message because, of course, if you're an investor, you're putting money in not for just tomorrow, but for the next few years. And so I think that, along with the, all the battles about ESG, is hindering investment. So U.S. production is up, but not as much this year as people would have expected. Lisa? I just think this is a fascinating issue. It just means higher prices longer term, right? I mean, basically, that's what this means. If you reduce uh, prices, if you reduce supplies, the only thing that you yeah. can end up doing is basically try to price it out of existence. Right. But that's not politically and, popular. And, and, and I think what you were talking about before, I mean, it's amazing to see that the oil price fluctuates on whether China is on the number of COVID cases in China, because you're missing maybe a million and a half barrels a day of demand from China. If you have right. that, we'd have a really tight market. Yeah, quickly here, elephant and donkey in the room. Give us a one-year prediction on a gallon of gas or on a price of oil. To, well, can we run out that. the clock here on that one? <laughs> <laughs> he punted. That was his punch. Where's Brent Well, I think, well, look, at, I think I, I was just looking at our economic forecast for 2023. If, if, if the global economy is weak next year, then that will put some uh, uh, price. But I think there's probably a floor around $70 or $80 on a barrel of oil. Dan can see the clock counting up to 50 yeah. cents. Yeah. He's yeah. just hoping that it gets there the quicker. Was there. <laughs> Look at the time. Hey, Dan, fantastic to see you. Good Thank to see you. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Thank sir. You. Dan Yerkin, the wonderful Dan Yerkin of S&P Global and, of course, of so much more. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. 
and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.